Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 28 in our series for 2017. And today's date is Friday the 11th of August. And this week, Leon, we're talking to Professor Ken Waller of RMIT University. That's right. Ken Waller is the director of RMIT's Australian APEC Study Centre, or AASC, and he's going to be talking to us all about the AASC securing a $14 million three-year contract with the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, or DFAT. And it's all going to be focusing on what's happening in APEC. And very interesting that'll be. And after that, we've got a really interesting take on the CBA money laundering allegations from Stephen Kukula. Okay, let's listen to Professor Waller. Ken Waller, tell us about this uh, Australian APEC Study Centre contract with the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Thank you. Uh, it is a big contract for the centre and for the university. It, it will run over seven years and... Uh, it's, the importance of it is the, uh, the links that the, we will develop with uh, the major parties uh, that we are contracted to work with through DFAT, and that's the OECD, the APEC group, the G20, uh, MICTA. Uh, and um, what that means is that uh, we'll be designing, helping DFAT design uh, training programs to advance Australia's interest through those programs into the into the various uh, major groups that we're part of, and allied with that will be work uh, of uh, training programs bringing specialists from business and from academia, including of course from our MIT, in our advising and uh, training policymakers from the economies that that participate in in the in the various groups, the big groups that I just mentioned. Now, you mentioned MICTA. I mean, that's an informal partnership, is it not, between uh, Mexico, Indonesia, Korea, Turkey and Australia, is it? That's right, yes. It is. Uh, it's an informal partnership. And the central points of that partnership are really finding areas of common interest. And I think the an area that strikes me very quickly is the need to enhance infrastructure in all three economies, in all of those economies. We as a centre have done a lot of work in infrastructure finance development, um, how to design infrastructure, how to uh, implement it, how to finance it. Um, we do this work with specialist groups of people and organisations within Victoria. Certainly within Victoria, we have the Victorian Infrastructure Group, which is a government agency which has established ways in which the um, Victoria should plan its future infrastructure development over 30-year plans and setting aside very large sums of funding for that. So the, the expertise is around in, in, in Australia and in Victoria for this kind of work. And I think all of the economies in MICTA uh, have, got the, have that very common interest in improving infrastructure. So basically uh, you'll be looking after issues like relationship building and uh, events management? We'll be a bit more than that. We'll be relationship building is one is 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 a natural thing to do. We have to do that. But, but more than that, we have to put together ideas on what we think are important things to be developed. What are the policy issues to be developed with the groups of economies we're working with? And then uh, when we get agreement on individual projects with DFAT, which we are required to enter enter separate agreements uh, with individual on individual projects projects, we then. Uh, get agreement and we then implement them and that that uh, so the, there's a policy advising stage there's a implementation 
uh, and training programs that are usually attached to those those events. Well, basically, you'd be uh, doing this for the rest of the world. I mean, you've got the G20, you've got APEC, you've got MICTA and the OECD. It's a big, uh, it's a big menu, I agree with you. Uh, the, the, the reality is that um, the essential work, I think, will be with, uh, through the APEC context. Why APEC is the centrepiece for... It, it is the, Australia's major, in my view, external economic um, forum. G20 is, is bigger and so is the OECD in membership and we have in those economies the uh, the wealthiest economies or countries in the world. APEC has got a mix of uh, its 21 economies. It, it includes uh, China and the United States, Japan, but it includes important developing economies of Asia, important to Australia, important to the world. And I, I sense that most of the work that we will do will be within APEC economies. Why, why we link and why DFAT link with G20 and, um, and the OECD is that they are policy formulating forums and they deal with many of the issues that we are really trying to advance within the developing economies through APEC, developing Asian economies. Yeah. So what skills are MIT at the head? I mean, what are you going to draw on, the science, the engineering? The skills we have as a center, let, let me distinguish, we've been here since uh, 2009 as a center um, promoting APEC matters. We draw many skills within RMIT for any program. We, we've run, I, I don't know how many programs, we've had 2,000 people from the region through our programs in short period, relatively short period of time. We've designed programs in financial inclusion, uh, investment policy, trade policy, supply chain, and value-added value chains, and in um, urban infrastructure. Structure. So this is the realm of things that are considered within the group of forums that we will be dealing with within APEC, within within with DFAT, quite broad ranging and but but not pretty well defined. Uh, the skills. Hand, bringing expertise into those programs requires varied varied skill base, which we find in this university, and we find in business in Australia, we find in international organisations, and we bring them into our training programme. Let me just talk about infrastructure and urbanisation. There are groups within RMIT dealing specifically with that, with livability and better cities. Yesterday I, w I was in, um, in Beijing and I, I signed on behalf of RMIT an agreement uh, with Melbourne University and Zhejiang University uh, on infrastructure. How, how are we going to promote public-private partnerships as a mechanism to improve infrastructure uh, development, financing, implementation uh, between Australia and China. But it, the, the, the ramifications for that are bigger than Australia-China. They're, they're, they're demonstrating the skills base that we have in this university, uh, in RMIT, uh, and, um, and in Victoria. For infrastructure as an important issue, what are the other key issues that you could be dealing with? Very big ones are, I mentioned a moment ago, a little while ago, we were talking uh, about the kind of advising that DFAT have, we discussed very recently. We are, we've, we've run training programs and workshops for DFAT in the APEC context on services. How do open service? Services is the biggest employer of people. It's the employment growth uh, sector. It is the economic growth sector of the world. The services sector big. It includes education. It includes financial services, health, community services, uh, uh, ICT, logistics, all of these services sectors have a relevance to this university. Now, what, what we will be promoting with, uh, with uh, DFAT is how do we bring the, the specialist knowledge that we can garner 
in Australia, in this university and in, and in Melbourne, more broadly, into advising what makes a competitive, quality, high-quality services sector. And we will pick sectors up, and, and I, well, we will include uh, education sector, uh, which is vital for us, for, for RMIT. You know we've got campuses across the region. How do we access those kind? How do we get access in other economies in the region for building campuses, if that's what we want to do? We have to have gateways to do this, pathways to do it, and that's what this program will do. It's not just about um, seven years to do a set of particular projects. It is a passport for this university to do many other things with other Commonwealth departments. And when we get, um, when people, other people get knowledge of what we are doing, we'll broaden the, uh, we'll broaden our reach into the Victorian government. We already work with the Victorian government. Uh, that's what we we're doing in Beijing last yesterday. So this would involve maybe new research programs within the university. Absolutely, I, I, critical. I sh- thank you for that. I, a critical part of the the, the reach from this program uh, is that. A, a component of it, a serious component of the programs that we will design will include research. And uh, we already, as a centre, uh, the biggest contributor to the uh, College of Business in research. We, we, we contribute about 50% of the research of this college. Uh, this program will extend our reach into research. Uh, and uh, it, it, it's, it's not just the college. It's, as I said earlier, urbanization takes us beyond just this uh, college to other parts of the university. It could go into health policy, environmental policy, livable cities policies. Yeah, urban design yes. right now is a hot topic, isn't it? I, exactly, yeah. I mean, it's, it, I mean, it's exactly what, I, you know, the program we had yesterday in, in uh, Beijing with uh, the, the National Commission, Development Reform Commission, Daniel Andrews, the Premier, was, was with us. And that's exactly what we're talking about, livable cities. What can Melbourne offer? What can RMIT offer? What can uh, the University of Melbourne offer in promoting livable cities? We have the governance, the know-how how to put public-private partnerships together. The Chinese have got great technology. They've got great con- contract engineering skills. The two of them will brought together will enhance a huge uh, capacity for improving cities across Australia and China. And that's just one, one element of this work. Ken Waller, thank you very much for your time. That's fascinating, and we wish you the best of luck. Thank you very much. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you. Well, that's a feather in the cap of RMIT, isn't it? I think so. I think so. And it, it's, a, it's an important centre. Indeed it is. And now Stephen Kukoulos and what he thinks about CBA. Stephen Kukoulos, the Commonwealth Bank has been rocked by the scandal of money laundering. And uh, so far they've cut the bonuses of Ian Narev and they've set up a subcommittee of the board to monitor it. Is it enough? Look, I don't think so. It's very serious what's going on. And in fact, the if you stop and think for a minute, why are the money laundering laws, and they are laws of the land, uh, in place? And it's because um, criminals, be they drug dealers, uh, other criminals and, heaven forbid, terrorists, need to get money somewhere and they've got to legitimise it. And that's what money laundering is all about. So the laws are in there to ensure that financial institutions have in place the ability to detect when they have a suspicious transaction. So when there's large cash transactions, they are meant to report them and 
hopefully nip the problem in the bud in terms of the criminal activity that's linked to it. And of course, there are legitimate transactions with cash, but they're, they're not uh, in question. So the fact that the CBA didn't have the uh, processes in place to one, identify it, two, to react to suspicious transactions and to report them quickly uh, is really a sign of, um, I don't know, it appears to be incompetence to me or it could be worse, but we'll have to wait and see what the uh, regulators determine. But it's a real blight on the Australian uh, financial system um, and it's potentially a, a really significant problem. Uh, the CBA, of course, uh, blames it on a coding error, but it seems to go deeper than that. Well, yes, and it probably was a coding error to begin with, but they did identify, as far as I understand the revelations so far, is that once they detected there was this error, and that's acceptable, if you know what I mean. We all make mistakes in institutions, but once you find an error, you deal with it very quickly. You work out what the consequences of that error are, you address them, uh, but it appears that this error was there for several years, from my understanding of uh, what's been publicly released, and the fact that it was there for several years, and it only took uh, Austrac and the other regulators to come in and um, confirm with CBA that there was a problem there that they finally reacted. It should have been one of those ones where, okay, there is an error, let's fix it, and gosh, what have we let through while the error has been in place? And clearly it was an absolute uh, avalanche of um, money laundering activities. So there have been calls for uh, Narev to uh, get sacked, basically, to lose his job. What's your view about that? I'm, I'm not sure if that's necessarily the problem. Now, clearly, he's in charge of something uh, of when there was uh, a huge problem. I think neither, that's neither here nor there. I don't think it's a sort of a, a figurehead type issue that we can just sheet the blame home to one person, even though clearly there's some look, apparently some culpability there. Um, it seems to be more important than that. There needs to be uh, implementation of the uh, penalties that are in place when institutions do breach their money laundering uh, requirements. And again, I'll leave that to the to the uh, regulators to work that out. But it appears as though just one or two or even three people you know, having their bonuses cut or having been sacked or whatever, that's not the problem. The problem is more entrenched. You can't just, you know, I'm sure that Ian Narrow didn't, yeah, necessarily oversee the problem in the first place. He wasn't responsible for the coding error or the things that occurred immediately after that. It seems to be a much, much bigger issue. The institution's got to be punished uh, as well as the individuals who are involved. And it's not not just at the top, it's probably a, a rotten core all the way through the institution to allow such a large number of transactions uh, to be um, unreported. Now, uh, the CBA today has reported a profit of close to $10 billion. Uh, yes. But uh, if they uh, are uh, fined, I mean, they, they, these fines are potentially up to a trillion dollars. I mean, that's a lot of money. <laughs> it is a lot. But I don't think they'll go that hard, and I don't. And I don't know whether that's the right thing either, um, uh, because you don't want your financial institutions to go bust, because that would basically break the um, uh, the bank. But that said, there has to be some significant penalties to ensure that they don't happen again. In fact, that's the nature of the um, of the system, that the uh, companies that are fined for breaches of uh, their responsibilities and obligations uh, hopefully don't do it again. And it's, um, it, it's a, it's a ve very simple way of uh, dealing with it. And I dare say uh, that the demands of the population, shareholders, customers, and the law enforcement agencies would be greatly enhanced if Commonwealth got a 
you know, a significant kick in the tail, uh, a financial kick in the tail, maybe heads roll as well. That's another issue that could be there uh, to make sure that it doesn't happen again. Because, again, getting back to that initial point, money laundering is a significant issue when we do have concerns about, you know, terrorism, drug financing and all these other things which are clearly socially undesirable. Uh, Senator Nick Xenophon's actually called for uh, jail sentences. I mean, what, what? And he says a fine is not enough. Um, what's your view yes. about that? Well, d- it depends on to the extent of the culpability of anybody involved in it. It, it. I know in the UK there has there have been people sent to jail for money laundering offences from the banks. I think HSBC had a an example even earlier this year, if I'm not mistaken, where uh, a number of its staff members were. Uh, implicated in some money laundering and of course the FSA the financial services association in the in the UK who are the regulators sent someone to jail for it so look at this precedents overseas gosh that's a big a big disincentive to um, to uh, flout the laws if there's such a severe penalty not just a financial one the other interesting question is uh, how much of this would implicate other banks i mean do you think other banks would be involved in this sort of stuff oh i hope not um look i I don't know. There's been no evidence of that so far. And I, I'm hoping, quietly confident, that the other banks have probably got a more rigorous um, uh, attitude to these money laundering issues. So, look, it, it, I don't know, uh, but I suspect not. There's been no evidence of that so far. That said, uh, all of this uh, would go to the opposition's or would give ammunition for the opposition's push for a royal commission into the banks, and the opposition has been calling for that. I mean, what's your view about that? Oh, look, yeah, all this certainly adds fuel to the case. It it clearly makes it yet another scandal, another more evidence of incompetence or uh, mismanagement of of the banking sector with, with implications for the rest of the economy. Look, the banks, their own institutions, they can do whatever they want to some extent, but to the extent that they've got a uh, legal and social and moral responsibility is clearly the concern that the Royal Commission advocates are pushing for. Um, look, on balance, initially, about six or 12 months ago, I didn't think a Royal Commission was necessarily the solution to the banking problems. But as more and more of these things are uncovered and some of the insurance scandals that have been evident over recent times, the more I think, well, we need some sort of significant inquiry, be that a Royal Commission or some other way that we can just tackle what's going on in the banking sector because it's it keeps throwing up these nasty, unpleasant, undesirable um, scandals that just, as I said, keep popping up every few months. And, of course, it would have a fair... It's likely to have a fair bit of public support because the banks are not that popular. They're not indeed, and to the extent that... Um, uh, we've got banks increasing interest rates in recent months out of cycle. Now, I know that's partly linked to the APRA and other regulatory requirements, but, yeah, interest rates are going up. Um, they've gone up for uh, investors by more than half a percentage point in many instances. And as I said, I know that's to do with the regulatory environment, but nonetheless, the public um, certainly dislike the banking sector. So to the extent that the opposition is going to be pushing for a Royal Commission, I suspect they're going to have the overwhelming support of the electorate. Um uh, to, to do so, uh, it's just that whether they whether they have the uh, power to, to get there, they've obviously got to win the next election, which is still probably close to two years away. So, um, the, yeah, there's a lot of water to go under the bridge before we get a royal commission. That said, I mean, where do you see this uh, scandal tracking? How do you see it developing from here? 
Well, I think it's, gosh, the, the, the thing's going to be linked to the disclosure, who's responsible, who within the CBA is responsible for this oversight. You know, okay, there is a coding error, as we've just acknowledged, that could be part of the problem, but who uh, noted the coding error? What did they do about it? And why did it take years for them to respond to it? And why were there these 50,000 plus breaches of the anti-money laundering uh, obligations before they did anything about it. It's it, We've got to find out more information and, in fact, uh, dig into what actually happened and how on earth it did happen. Stephen Koulis, thank you very much for your time. As always, Leon, thank you. Yeah, well, uh, I guess nobody's going to disagree, are they? No. <laughs> I think the bank is in a lot of trouble. Yeah, much more than they than Ian Narev has uh, actually admitted. That's right. As uh, Stephen said, this might push the way for a royal commission into the banking sector. I think that'd be pretty popular in the parliament right now. A bit of bank bashing as well. Well, that's right, yes. Okay, now, Leon, what have you got in the news bin this week? Well, Gary, the price of iron ore has hit its highest level since April, ahead of looming production curbs with Beijing ordering steel producers to reduce output this winter in an effort to curb chronic air pollution. Iron ore, which is so crucial for the profits of miners and the state of the Australian budget, has topped $76 a tonne, was trading at $76.16. This will be a big boost for the shares of mining giants like BHP Billiton, Rio Tinto, and Rio Tinto last week announced the biggest interim dividend in the company's 144-year history and flagged share buybacks. Now, the price of iron Iron ore fell to $53 US in May, but it has surged more than 40% since then on the back of strong Chinese demand and limited growth in supply. And the jump in iron ore prices also comes at a time when steel inventories in China are at a low. Now, iron ore, along with coke and coal, is one of the key ingredients in steel making. And as a result, steel futures have also driven higher in anticipation of a spike in demand, and analysts are tipping the price of iron ore will keep rising, at least for now. But remember that the uh, recent history of uh, mineral prices is one of quite steep fluctuations, and how long it'll last is a good question. Well, that's right, that's right. So let's just watch that space. It could be in for a period of some volatility, depending what's happening in China. Now, the Commonwealth Bank says... A software coding error produced what it said was a vast majority of its alleged anti-money laundering law breaches. Last Thursday, the Australian Transaction Reports and Analysis Centre, or AUSTRAC, filed a motion in the federal court to prosecute the bank for allegedly perpetrating over 53,700 contraventions of the Anti-Money Laundering and Counter-Terrorism Financing Act 2006. And the allegations relate to so-called intelligent deposit machines, or which are similar to ATMs, which are rolled out in 2012, which could have been used for money laundering syndicates and gangs moving proceeds of a drug manufacturing money offshore or domestically. Now, CBA said the coding issue arose after an unrelated software upgrade to its IDMs in late 2012. The bank said that following the software update, a coding error occurred, which meant the IDMs did not create the correct threshold transaction reports to Austrac. And it said the error went unnoticed until 2015. And it said the vast majority of reporting failures related specifically to the coding errors. So the bank is all putting it down to a coding error, Gary. That's very nice, helpful. Yeah, but uh, it doesn't explain why... They didn't report it. 
At the same time, the board of the Commonwealth Bank of Australia has responded to the money laundering scandal to its rock CBA investors by wiping the bonuses for CBA chief executive Ian Narev and CBA executives. The decision means Mr Narev and his fellow senior executives will lose all their short-term variable bonuses in total for the financial year just ended. And the board has also taken some responsibility for the court scandal. It's cut its own non-executive director fees by 20% for the current 2018 financial year. Now, the bank is facing fines of up to a trillion dollars. And it's quite a pay cut for Mr Narev. In 2016, his total pay packet of $13.3 million included $2.8 million in short-term variable pay. And that included some long-term bonuses at Vested. However, despite market speculation about Mr Narev's future, his job appears to be safe for now. Now, CBA Chair Catherine Livingston said to the market, Mr Narev retains full confidence of the board. In any event, that still doesn't answer the question. I mean, cut all their bonuses. That's only going to focus attention on how much these guys are paid anyway. That's right. And I think the speculation about Mr Narrow's future will continue for some time because the bank is facing some very steep fines. Now, Australian businesses are now operating in conditions at their highest level since early 2008 before the global financial crisis, according to the National Australia Bank's monthly business survey. The NAB said the business conditions index going into the third quarter was up one point to 15 index points, three times along on average. The survey, which is monitored by the Reserve Bank of Australia, also found the business confidence index jumped four points in July, 12 index points, double its long-run average. That said, the only component of the index to show any uplift was profitability, which rose to 18 points from 14. Employment conditions remained flat, while trading and sales moderated slightly. Indeed, the overall picture was patchy on closer examination of the data. The improvement in the NAB index was driven primarily by the buoyant professional services sector. However, conditions in the retail and wholesale sectors softened in the face of competitive pressures and constraints on household spending. NAB Chief Economist Alan Oster said that there are longer-term challenges to domestic demand, which have, will have implications for the labour market. And while the ABS underemployment rate is also suggesting that there's a still fair degree of slack in the labour market. He said Australia still faced elevated underemployment, household debt and peaks in LNG exports and housing construction and that weighed on the longer term economic outlook. It's a patchy picture. Indeed it is, and there's a lot of people down at the bottom of the heap who are hurting. That's right. Now, low wages growth, energy prices and household debt has sent consumer confidence crashing. Australian consumer confidence has nosedived, with the ANZ Roy Morgan Australian Consumer Confidence Index falling a sharp 4% last week. The drop in confidence partly wound back any gains made over the previous two weeks. Consumers' feelings about current and future conditions fell 10 and 7.3% respectively. Views about future financial conditions also fell 2.3%, its third consecutive decline. On the plus side, households' views towards current financial conditions improved 2.8%, and that more than reversed the 1.2% fall in the previous week. Also... Consumer confidence has fallen 1.2% from 96.6 to 95.5 in June in the latest Westpac Melbourne Institute Index of Consumer Sentiment. And uh, when the number goes below 100, it means the pessimists outnumber the optimists, and it's the ninth consecutive month where pessimists have outnumbered optimists. Yeah, a lot of that's coming from the bottom of the employment sector. Australia's construction sector has soared in July, gaining 4.5 points to 60.5 and reaching its highest level in 12 years. Years, according to the Australian Industry Group Housing Industries Association latest performance of construction index or PCI. The PCI measures the performance for construction industry month to month and any figure above 50 points to ex- 
expansion, anything below is a contraction. And the latest PCI figures are the highest since the survey began in 2005. So this is the highest in 12 years. And the major drivers of growth were house building, which is up 3.4 points to 62.4, and commercial construction, which was up 9.8 points to 64.3. Growth in new orders also accelerated up 2.7 points to 64.6, suggesting there's a significant amount of work in the pipeline, Gary. Even so, construction is a little bit worrying because it could drop off quite suddenly. That's right. Now, job advertisements continue to rise according to the latest ANZ job advertisement number. The ANZ figures jumped 1.5% in July in seasonally adjusted terms. That lifts total job ads up 6.5% since the beginning of the year, with annual growth picking up 10.5% in June to 12.8% this month. The numbers show a definite improvement in the job market. The trend growth rate has averaged 1.1% over the seven months of the year, compared to 0.3% over the same period a year ago and that's going to be look very good for the jobs figures Gary. But as I said before um, how much of that is underemployment because the ABS doesn't identify the difference between full-time and part-time. That's true it's a very good point. Now Westpac has pumped 40 million dollars into fintech zip money and it's one of the largest fintech equity investments in Australia. The deal also includes 8 million in performance options. Now zip money is a buy now pay later lender which provides loans between a thousand dollars and $10,000 for up to eight months with interest-free periods for between three to six months. And these loans, though, have to be used to buy goods purchased from Zip Money's retail partners. Now, the deal will allow the integration of Zip services across Westpac's network across Australia, and Westpac will become a substantial shareholder in Zip Money with 17.11% stake. And Zip Chief Executive and Officer and Managing Director Larry Diamond said the deal will accelerate the growth of Zip's network and origination volumes. And I think that's very interesting because it shows the banks are now working with the fintech sector. They have to. They, um, they have to, but it's a good move. Now, hundreds of Woolworths customers have been left fuming after a payments processing glitch saw them being charged twice. Woolworths blamed the processing error on an error at the data center of Kuskel, the payment processor servicing financial institutions. Kuskel confirmed the glitch and apologized for the inconvenience, saying it was working to fix the processing error. It said customers will not be left out of pocket, and it's unknown exactly how many customers will be affected by the system's glitch, but they took to Twitter to express their anger. Maybe Kuskel could talk to CBA about computer errors. That's right, that's right. But uh, it was not a good look for Woolworths. Not at all. And Gary, finally, the profit season enters its second week and here are the latest company reports. The CBA has reported a 4.6% rise in full-year cash profit to $9.88 billion. Macquarie Media, which owns Sydney's 2GB and Melbourne's 3AW along with Brisbane's 4BC, Perth's 6PR, posted a net profit of $16.8 million in the year to June 30, up from $13.9 million the previous year. Auckland-based casino and hotel group Sky City Entertainment, which is also listed in Australia, posted a 1.3% rise in net profit to New Zealand, 154.6 million in the year, ended June 30. Carsales.com has posted a 4% rise in earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization of 176.5 million. Cloud accounting software provider reckons net profits slipped from 6.2 million to 5.5 million for the half year ended in June 30, 2017. Wealth management company IWF reported a 16% drop in net profit to 116 million, down from 137.9 million the year before. Transurban posted a near 
tenfold increase in its net profit to $209 million in the 12 months through to June, up from $22 million in the 2016 fiscal year. Maine Pharma said it anticipated its full-year earnings before interest tax appreciation amortisation to rise more than 140% to US $212 to $216 million, excluding a $25 million non-cash charge. Building materials supplier James Hardy has reported its first quarter profit falling 34% to US $57.4 million. That's uh, $72.6 million Aussie partly due to higher production costs. And finally, Woolworths landlord SCA Property Group has reported a 73% rise in full-year net profit to $319.6 million. A pretty good result. And uh, next week, we're going to be talking to Lauren Magna, an analyst at Ibis World. She's going to be talking to us all about the retail sector and the anticipated arrival of Amazon. There's a lot of fear about Amazon, but maybe it's not going to be as bad as everybody thinks. That's right, and there's nothing like a bit of competition to get the retailers going. Exactly. In the meantime, you can tune in to us on Twitter at TalkingBizBizZ or on Facebook. We look forward to bringing you all the new financial, business and economics news next week in just 30 minutes.